Well, um, I would like you to turn to the book of Acts and make a few comments about the new book, which only came out on Friday. And um, it was many months in the writing, got a lovely foreword from R.T. Kendall, who's a dear friend of this church, as he's a dear friend of mine. And you know, I'm, I'm personally convinced there's only one thing that can bless the towns and cities of our nation at this time, and bring about the transformation from root right through to branches, and that's the gospel. No wonder God is underlining that to us in amazing ways. And the hand of God will come on so many of us in ways that we'll, we'll find difficult, probably, and challenging to respond to. The successful ministry of Jonah was given a curveball by a sudden call of God to leave the prosperity and fame he'd won in Israel, his own nation, and go hundreds of miles east across the desert sands to a pagan city in Assyria called Nineveh. And you know, it was C.S. Lewis who once said that God is always saving people I don't like and saving them in ways I don't wholly approve of. Well, you know, the patron saints of C.S. Lewis in his honesty must be Jonah. Just four chapters, less than 60 verses. But it's one of the most powerful books in the Minor Prophets and indeed the whole of the Old Testament. This little runt of a man as I picture him had a small soul to match. And what happened, of course, is that he ran from God. The prophet who ran from God. And you know the stories that wherever he went, God was with him. And so it is, we need to discover the same God and his heart for our cities and nations today. And I know very few parts of Scripture that can impact our lives as in the way that those four chapters of Jonah can do. So I've called this book The Jonah Complex because there's mysteries about this man. But the strap line is rediscovering the outrageous grace of God. So I do hope you'll take a look at that and consider buying it. Now let's turn to the book of Acts, where I want to read to you from Acts chapter 1. And you'll know that uh, the work Luke-Acts is a, is a double history of the earthly birth and adolescence and then public ministry of Jesus for the three years. He uh, served God in word and words uh, and works of power until his crucifixion and resurrection finished his ministry, completed it. Then the book of Acts opens, and it says here from Acts chapter 1, verse 12, soon after the departure and return of Jesus to heaven. Then they, that is, the disciples and others who uh, belong to his closest circle of people, they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit, Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas. And he means Judas, Judas Iscariot. Who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. And there he fell along, headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field, in their language, Hacheldama, that is, the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted and let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism, 
to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, I want to um, point out something that's often struck me. I don't know if you ever read church history. I've studied that at least partly during my three-year undergraduate course at Durham University, and I've always had a fascination with church history, not least through the historic heroes I admire most, who uh, in turn had a love for church history. But this, the book of Acts, is the only inspired book of church history that we possess. All other books are to one degree or another inspiring, but this is the only inspired church history. And since it's God-breathed, like all the other scriptures, it means that it's authoritative. It's not just lessons of what happened 2,000 years ago and 2,000 miles away as far as we're concerned in modern Britain today. This is God's description of the launch and life of his early church. And I remember as a small boy, and it still happens in cinemas today, that we would often go to the cinema and pay good money to see films, usually two in those days, and that there would be trailers that would come on just before the main feature was shown. And basically, they were trying to lure you back to that cinema to uh, pay money again to see another feature coming later. Coming soon to a cinema near you would be the, the, the way in which those trailers were advertised. And in many ways, when you read the book of Acts, it's like watching a cinema trailer of the running centuries from this point onwards. In fact, we should read it in this way, that it is a model of all that God wants to do and intends for his people everywhere through all time. Coming soon to a church near you. God wants us to experience the same things they did. So I want to take these opening verses under a theme which I've called the tipping point. They're clearly marking a transition from where they had been for three years or so with Jesus and then the tragic and traumatic experiences of Christ's arrest and crucifixion, his burial, where all seemed lost and gone, and then the sudden reversal on Easter Sunday, and then the many appearances to them over a period of nearly six weeks, and then finally his departure from them. Now we move into this transitional period where all of that is now over and that something incredible is about to happen. And this short period of time is going to give way to the whole era of the Holy Spirit after ascending from heaven. Now, I've been a pastor long enough to know that um, it takes often many years and many transitions for the church and churches to come into the things God has for them. Ant was telling me earlier that he's been in London for about 11, or at least in Albans for about 11 years. I've been nearly 10 years in, in Westminster, having spent 21 years prior to that ministering in a church in, in Winchester down in Hampshire. And we'll both be able to testify, however long we've been in ministry, there are times when we're kept waiting far longer than we anticipated for the things God wants to do. It doesn't mean, say, our faith dies or our expectancy is killed. It just means we get puzzled about why we are having to wait this long at all. And so what often happens is that we leave a place where we have one, nothing but wonderful memories to enter into something rather less than that. And this is often called in the Bibles a wilderness experience. I don't mean to say that we're in pure desert. I just mean we're not where we were, 
and we're not yet where we're headed to. It's a trash and transition period. One time we went on holiday um, with our three boys, now grown up, um, taking a ferry from Dover across to the, to the coast of France, where we were going to spend a fortnight about 40 miles from Paris, out inside in the countryside. And, of course, it was very exciting to leave the white cliffs of Dover behind, which sink below the horizon after a few miles. And then you're just in the, the channel, and you can't see land in any direction for a while. So we went all around the ferry just to have examine, examine the place and try and keep ourselves somewhat amused on the journey. And um, you couldn't see land. The, the boat was chugging along and churning up foam with gulls following it, but we couldn't see a thing. But we went up on an upper deck and could see into the bridge where the captain and some of his officers were navigating the ship across the channel safely. And there was a big circular radar screen. And this radar screen was circling around and it was showing any other shipping that was on the surface of the water ahead of us so that we could be assured we're safe because the, obviously there would be tactics taken to avoid that shipping. It was quite some time, however, before we began to see the coast of France appear from the top of the screen and then larger areas of land uncovered. But we could, still could not see it. Only its image on radar. But we knew for sure now it was approaching. We didn't have to take it by faith any longer. We had evidence it was happening. And so it is when we're on a journey as churches and as God's people, God will send us many promises, prophetic words, visions and dreams, expectations of things that he's about to do, but he doesn't tell us how long it will take to see it unfold. Because we walk by faith, not by sight. Our radar has only analogies to the prophetic sensitivity God gives to us. And that is enough, but often we're so longing to see the real thing. Here, the disciples in Acts 1 were in such a time of transition. You remember those famous words of Sir Winston Churchill after the victory of Montgomery at El Alamein in northern uh, Africa? And it was a crucial battle that may well have turned the course of the whole of the Second World War. What was certain is if he'd lost it, uh, Britain would have been in dire trouble. And if you remember, Winston Churchill was so thrilled with this victory in this time between the commencement of the war and a victory that lay some time ahead. He said, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it may be the end of the beginning. Now that's how we often feel in a nation that's going down the tubes morally and spiritually and politically. And a church that's had its fainting fits and its times of decline and resurgence of spiritual renewal and then backsliding. It's difficult for us to tell where we are. It's not the end, though. And it certainly may be the beginning of the end. And we're looking forward to God doing great things for us. There's a text in Hebrews 10 that you probably know, um, where were warned and cautioned about losing confidence in, in these times of difficulties for God's people. We're told that, so do not lose your confidence, for it will meet a great reward. It's not that we're tempted to lose our faith. It's not that we're tempted to lose our salvation. It's not that we're tempted to lose the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What we're tempted to lose is our confidence. And so massive traumas of change and upheaval and betrayal had happened to the Twelve and the rest of that company who had watched things at a further distance. And they were now full of uncertainties about the future. They had no dates in mind as to when the promises of Jesus would be fulfilled. Wait into Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. How long have we got to wait? 
What will follow that arrival of that power? And so there were plenty of wild guesses and daring prophecies and dogmatic predictions. If you look in chapter 1, verse 6, so it says, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the people living on the edge at this point and who are saying, is this it then? Are we going to see the the kingdom come in triumph and throw out the Romans and make us the top dogs in the world and and we'll advance your name and kingdom immediately? They don't know. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the dates of the times. Why does God withhold information like this from us when that very information could do us the world of good? Why? Because we live by faith, not by sight. And it means, therefore, that all kinds of speculations were bouncing around among these disciples. The ascension was the only thing they got the privilege to see at this point. And Jim Packer explains what they saw. He says the disciples first saw a short vertical movement of Jesus, then a vague luminosity, and then nothing. And that was it. The Lord had gone. Vague luminosities are fascinating, aren't they? But nothing is nothing. How long are we going to wait then? Where's he gone? When will we ever see him again? Well, military strategists have a phrase for what was about to unfold that they were, at this point, fairly unaware of. It's called a tipping point. In this gap between, we can see their speculation in verse 6. Will you at this time restore the children of uh, the, the uh, kingdom to Israel, we can also see their escapism in the sense that in verse 11 they asked, where well, they were asked by the angel, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. They're looking for an airlift immediately. And all the years I've been a Christian since the mid-1960s, 1967, I have seen the church constantly awaiting an airlift out of here, an escape from this world, so that we can go raptured to heaven and return with Jesus to end the whole shebang. Actually, we will get an airlift to heaven And the old shebang will end. But in the last 44 years I've been a Christian, I'm so glad God left me on earth rather than airlifted me back then. Because God has a task for us to perform before Jesus returns from heaven. And we forget that at our peril, but more importantly at the world's peril. And so I want to bring to you what this means. Military strategists, when they talk about a turning point in any unresolved conflict, battle, or war, speak of a point where the balance shifts from one side in the conflict to the other, a tipping point. And the more that tipping point unfolds, the more certain it is that one side is going to win this victory because the tide has turned for them in this war. There's no going back now. Nuclear physicists physicists speak of what they call a critical mass in a nuclear chain reaction. And those are triggered by bombarding um, radioactive material with particles until that chain reaction is triggered. And that chain reaction at certain points can be stopped, but after a certain point, It becomes unstoppable, as in the explosion of an atomic or or hydrogen bomb. There is no way that explosion can be reversed from that point onwards. And that's what God himself can do spiritually for his church and in the lives of individuals and whole companies of his people. We can suddenly go from autumn and then into winter 
and then find by the hand of God, spring and summer are on their way, where the seasons of our most productive and fruitful times in our lives are about to unfold. So in Acts 1, 12 to 26, here are the 120 disciples doing exactly what God told them to do. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. They were at a tipping point point, and approaching a critical mass in God's dealings with them as a small group of his people. So here then is the swing from Easter to Pentecost. From Christ's crucifixion to Christ's outpouring of his powerful Holy Spirit on his people. And I want to say that I've noticed that some of the experiences they had have been common periodically in the 31 years I've been a pastor. And if I'm honest, even earlier than that, before I ever became a minister of the gospel. And the first thing I want to tell you that you might not be cheered to hear is waiting waiting. What are we waiting for? Well, we're waiting for God's timing. Now, they didn't know this, but it was just 10 days for them. From the ascension to the falling of the Holy Spirit upon them. How long have we been waiting for such times? I thank God that these times come and come again. But we are always in a period of waiting for the next time God visits us in this this kind of special way. They weren't idling and they weren't drifting. Waiting is a word for expectancy. And that's the thing that may well be jeopardized more often than not in the hearts of God's people. This, however, was not a passive drifting along. This was an expectant awe at what had happened and at the prospect of what could potentially happen. So this is a period of anticipation. The church in the West has had a flow of prophetic ministry for well nigh 40 to 50 years now. And many promising fulfillments through the Pentecostal and and then charismatic renewals and then the third wave through the ministry of John Wimber and others like him who have equipped the saints the great restoration church movements that planted a new style, first of house churches, but churches that wanted real community and the presence of God manifest among them and mission empowered by the Holy Spirit. I thank God for all of these periods and I've experienced all of them in the times I've been a Christian. But we are actually waiting on God for more than we are presently experiencing. I have a friend And his name is Nick Sharp. He's now a pastor of a New Frontiers church in Nottingham. And I've known him for many years because we are both part of the New Frontiers movement. And he was a, a, a top soldier in the British Army before he became a pastor. He was a member of the SAS. Highly trained, highly disciplined, always ready. In the former times, they used to call such soldiers Minutemen because they were to be available on short notice for whatever the commanding officer in the army had for them to do. Well, Nick once told me that he was on battle ready readiness in terms of merely a few hours. It didn't matter whether he was on vacation or on leave at his home. He had two hours to get to his army camp if the call came for him to move into combat readiness, maybe to go to Northern Ireland or to some trouble spot in the Middle East, he had to turn up at headquarters with his kit bag and uniform with every piece of equipment he would need on the field. Otherwise, he would be on a charge. This included spare pairs of socks, oil for his gun to maintain its actions. If only we were so battle-ready and so on the ball uh, to follow the promptings of God when they come to us. So waiting is very important. Waiting is idling around and filling in time. Waiting isn't just keeping yourself entertained to death. It's, It's being expectant that God could move tonight, that God could move 
next weekend, that God could, within a month, turn everything around for us. That's the kind of expectancy we should be living in. The second thing I see is marking these men and women is that they were together. We're told in 12 to 14 of their gathering in an upstairs room. And then it gives a list of the names who were there, including the apostles, and other lesser-known characters. But it included Mary, the mother of Jesus, and some of Jesus' flesh brothers. Brothers who had initially been in unbelief about him, but had come to faith. One of them would have been the Apostle James. Another would be Jude, who wrote the epistles at the end of the New Testament. But here they were together. And this is a God-orchestrated relational unity that the Lord is bringing about in diversity. You've got seniors in that gathering and relative juniors, younger people. You've got leaders and others who have been led. You have a mix of men and women. You have old hands who've been on the road with Jesus for three years. And you've got newcomers like Matthias. Where did he pop up from? How did he get into the circle of the twelve apostles at the end of this passage? A controversial passage that people say they made a mistake in choosing him because you never hear of him again. Well, who are we to argue when God hasn't explained that to us more clearly? So they're all in growing agreement and experiencing mutual delight in each other. They must have spent scores and scores of hours together over these 10 days. They were eager to be together. I'm sure it wasn't as cold as it is in here tonight, however. And they were eager for each other's success. They were sharing insights. This is why Peter stood up and opened the Scriptures, because God had given him a prophetic insight into the departure of Judas Iscariot, the one who had betrayed the Lord and sold him for 30 pieces of silver. It is good to be gathered around God's Word, among leaders and less experienced, of those who want to know more and what the Lord would say to them. Open, they're open in their heart and ears to hear from God. So they're agreed in faith. They're not giving up, even if there's puzzlement and unanswered questions. And they're overflowing in sympathy and love for each other, fellow feeling. See, I would put it like this. If we're going to go anywhere, there's certain factors that have to be present among us. Relationships, friendships, comradeships, partnerships. These are the only ships the Holy Spirit sails in. I've been in churches that have been fragmented and fractured with strained relationships, people who feuded and not even talked to each other anymore. It's no wonder the Holy Spirit is grieved and nothing much happens, certainly nothing spectacular. When God heals such relationships and brings a unity that only He can bring, then we can discern we're at the tipping point. Because not only faith expectancy, but unity together is vitally important. Say that word with me. Unity. Unity. And so, the church is not just a club. There's something that is hard to dismiss and even harder to explain about a genuine church of Jesus Christ. It can't be explained away because there's a Holy Spirit dynamic about it. Here's the third factor in a tipping point for change, and it's called this prayer. So in verse 14, we're told, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You probably remember the Puritan commentator, most Christian households have at least a portion, if not the whole, of Matthew Henry's commentary in the library somewhere. Matthew Henry said, when God wants to do something great for his people, he always sets them to praying. I don't know if you've had that experience as a church or as individuals in the church. You suddenly feel a burden to pray. And this can lead to very costly, sacrificial praying over long periods of time. 
The two provocative things about this praying that was described here, one, it was corporate, so it meant that there was more than individuals engaging in this. They did it together. And second, that it was constant. Our problem is often that our prayers are solitary and spasmodic. I don't know how many of you are satisfied with your prayer life at this special time. It's difficult to do this solitary on a regular basis, and therefore it's often spasmodic. But there are times when God orchestrates a season, perhaps a lengthy season. In 1997, for example, around the time of the death of Princess Diana, which shook a nation, a Korean pastor came to Britain and he went to speak and wherever a door opened to him to try and stir up British leaders and pastors and then whole churches to pray in the way he'd experienced for many years in Korea. I don't even remember his name. I didn't hear him personally. But I do know this. At a gathering of 30 to 35 pastors, this pastor from Korea so stirred up that company of people that it led to significant change in Britain at that time. For example, one of the people present was a youth pastor from Christian Fellowship Church in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And he returned two or three days later to the church, and he told his pastor Paul that uh, he'd heard this striking word, and he's come home with a burden to call the church to prayer, early morning prayer like they do it in Korea, and that we should start a prayer meeting this week or the week after at 6 a.m. in the morning for a whole hour before the kids are even up or anybody's going on, the, on, the, on their way to work. Well, Paul came over to preach for me about a month after this had started. Our church in Winchester was sat in a, new, in a building we'd recently bought. It's a cinema bingo hall that we acquired that year. And he began to tell us of the story of amazing things that had been happening in this month of prayer meetings that they'd had every single morning of the week. And he began to tell me of the way in which their people were coming under the power of God and witnessing with others, and it led many people to Christ. After he finished the message, I was so struck by this and touched in my heart. I stood up and thanked him warmly, and then said to the church, Do you know, I'm going to drop my series that I'm currently involved with, and I'm going to, I'm going to preach on prayer next week so that I can motivate you and perhaps in a month or so, we'll be ready to do the same thing. And this was met with absolute silence. And I was reading their faces, and as I was reading their faces, they weren't silent because they were groaning and saying, oh no, they were silent because they were wondering why I wasn't suggesting we started those prayer meetings tomorrow. So I tentatively said, uh, I tend to sense that you all don't want to wait a week or a month to start these. You want to start tomorrow. And then the whole place erupted in applause and hollers and praises in the Lord and, yes, pastor! So we did. Now, I'm not an, I'm not an early bird. I'm a night owl. I like staying up late, reading or whatever. And getting up in the morning is not my best time of the day. But the following morning, I said, we're going to open the building at 6 a.m. and we'll pray for an hour and you'll be way back in time at home to get your kids breakfasted and off to school. Or work if you need to go there. Everybody up for it? And they all went, yes! So I got up at 5 a.m. the next morning. Now this is not an early bed, don't forget. And at 5 a.m. I was up and then showered and out of the house in the dark to be at the building which one of our staff opened. you know how long those, those prayer meetings lasted? Five mornings a week at 6 a.m. till 7 with a sleepy head pastor getting up morning after morning after morning for years. 
four years praying for our church's life, praying for our city, praying for our region of churches, praying for our nation, praying for the world. Some of the most amazing times we've ever had. Some of the most amazing results that followed. The money God released to finish our building projects. The people who found their way to us and found their way to Christ through doing that. It seems that when God is arranging a tipping point for the life of a church, one of the earliest things he will stir is a, is a burden that you can only explain supernaturally. It's not that we never prayed or didn't have prayer meetings. We did. But this was an extraordinary burden of prayer. And it's one that lasted over four years. And that church was transformed. And I dare to tell you, that city was transformed. I've never seen anywhere in Britain the degree of unity that came to the churches in that town and cooperation in mission and evangelism and public witness and the love that the leaders had for one another. And we trace it all back to prayer. And they knew here in Acts 1 they really needed one another and that they would not give up seeking God. John Wesley, the great Methodist founder, said this, God does everything in answer to prayer and nothing without it. What a striking statement. So Jesus himself had set them this task and they would not renege on it. And only he could tell them if and when they were to stop praying. Do you know when they stopped praying in Jerusalem? After this moment? Do you remember reading Acts 2 after the day of Pentecost? And the things they gave themselves to? Well, one of them was prayer. I don't know how long these prayer meetings went on for, but I guess they went on for some considerable length of time, judging from the narrative in the book of Acts. Now, the question is, when will we start? Or maybe a more pertinent question, when will we stop? Andrew Walker, he wrote a book on the Restoration Movement and classified it as R1, R2, R3. Some of you, any of you read that book? Fascinating sociology of a renewal movement back in the 1970s through to the 90s. But he's a scholar at King's College, London. And he spoke in another piece he wrote about six degrees of revival. Would you like to hear what they are? Number one is R1. He called them R1, R2, R3, R4. R1 is this, a spiritual quickening in the life of an individual believer. How many of you have had a, an experience a little like that? A spiritual quickening in the life of an individual believer? None of you. Some of you. And it is wonderful when you come all alive again after a period where you've gone somewhat off the boil. R2, Revival 2, is a planned meeting or campaign to quicken faith, the faith of believers, and bring new believers to faith. Well, thank God I've seen times like that. Times like that when I was a young Christian, first converted, and we saw in our little Baptist church in Bootle in Merseyside a number of young people come in who had just come to faith or were coming to faith. And then Bible studies together. And all, all of them that I know of are still going on with God over 40 years later. And then at college and university where there was a quickening during the first term and several people got saved in our college in Durham. That's good. That's wonderful. R3 is an unplanned period of spiritual enlivening in a local church, affecting unbelievers and believers alike for an indefinite season. Unplanned periods are not things we've worked up or even expected necessarily. And I think the one that I most memorably, memorably can recall was, in, was launched in our experience at least, at the end of 1993, and we'd had a number of travelers come into the church in Winchester, uh, people who'd been on drugs, sex, and rock and roll, and they got saved, and came in and brought their friends in who got saved, 
But because they'd had no church backgrounds and very poor parenting, they were deeply rebellious and resistant to any kind of guidance or authority over their lives. And I used to have regular argy-bargies with them because they'd be complaining about the quality of the cars on the car park because they were left-wingers. And anybody who had anything other than a Morris Minor was, was a rich capitalist and greedy and selfish. And so we'd have these arguments about judgmentalism and who, you have no you're in no position to argue with these people. You don't know how they acquired their wealth or what they do with their money. You're just judging by mere appearances. And Well, you can understand it. We had all these arguments. And uh, it came to a point by Christmas that I was depressed as hell about this. Where'd you get converts like this? And I went, I said to the church, I can't face much more of this. As we came in in the new year, I said, we're going to call a special season of prayer. This was before the early morning ones, by the way. 1903, this was. And I said, we're going to come back. We're going to cancel our small groups. We're going to come back for a night of prayer for indefinitely until God tells us what he's going to do. And that's what we did the very next Wednesday. And a big number turned out. And we began praying about God coming. And from the first night, prophecies came of a promise of a special visitation of the Holy Spirit. So we're now in early 94, February, March, April. And as the months went by, so many prophecies came of Jesus coming in our midst, laden with gifts. But we would be more fascinated with the giver than we would be with the gifts. Not like kids on Christmas morning. And that we'd see a tide coming in, like on the Thames, where all the barges begin to float and can now move instead of being stuck in the mud. When you get 10, 12 of these prophecies, you know something amazing is going to happen. And I went off with must have been about April or May, to plan a conference for pastors to experience the Spirit called Life in the Spirit. I was part of the organizing group for years. And um, I missed prayer and fasting in New Frontiers to go to this committee meeting. And when I got back for the prayer meeting, my fellow elders had gone to uh, the prayer and fasting that Terry Virgo leads, and they came back at 9.30, when our evening prayer meeting ended, and um, as they walked in, I could see they were pretty excited about something. And here we are, we're preparing for a Holy Spirit visitation. So my young colleague, Guy, came forward and he said, Greg, you, you won't believe what has happened among those 500 pastors who've been gathering. The Holy Spirit fell on all of us. People ended up all over the floor. Some were laughing, some were crying. One person was sat on a window ledge. Another was on his back, sat pedaling like, like a unicycle in the air. I said, what? It didn't compute to me. How? What? He said, I'm telling you, we've had 48 hours in the presence of God like nothing I've ever seen before. And as he began to tell the church, for three minutes at the end of the meeting, a girl fell off a chair in the meeting while he was telling very bleakly about this visit of the Holy Spirit. By the next weekend, the Spirit fell on our church. And we went through a period of nearly four years of the most extraordinary visitation of God, where lives were utterly transformed, where services lasted three to five hours, where the Holy Spirit came and healed people, renewed them, changed their character, why, even some of those travelers got affected powerfully. And so this is revival three, an unplanned period of spiritual enlivening where believers and unbelievers are affected. You know, 8,000 churches in Britain were affected over those next three to four years. 8,000 churches. It was called the Toronto Blessing. I don't care what you call it. I can tell you it was God. Then Revival 4 is a city or region-wide experience of new life and widespread conversions and additions to the churches. Region-wide. Think of the Welsh Revival, 1904-1905. 
Think of the Hebridean revival in 1950s. Think of the East African revival in the 50s, the Indonesian revival, more recently the Pensacola revival, where a million people went through a single church in this West Texas town. And think too of the ways in which the campus revivals spread over America not so long back. And what's happened in Manhattan through the ministry of Tim Keller. And what's happened in pagan Seattle through the ministry of Mark Driscoll. We're living in days when God has not given up on impacting cities and regions. God, help us. We need this to happen in London and beyond the M25 too. Amen? And it can. And God wants us to experience this. But think too of societal and cultural awakening. The evangelical revival under Wesley Whitfield and others in the 18th century crossed oceans, and it awoke both the colonies in America and many, many towns and cities in in England. In fact, historians calmly suggest that we would have had a bloodbath, a violent revolution like the French had in Paris and beyond in 1789 if it had not been for the revival under the Wesleys and Whitfields in this country. If we had not seen that, our nation was ripe for violent turmoil. And yet the revival not only saved hundreds of thousands, it saved a nation. And finally, he suggests the possible reversal of secularization and total revival of Christianity in a huge scale. Imagine in a decline, spiritually dead Britain, other than pockets here and little fires there, that this whole nation could change in a matter of months or a few short years? Imagine if that was possible. Well, it is. Now, all of these six are desirable. I don't know which one you would most favorably have, but the fact is they're all preceded by the kind of tipping point I'm talking about, and one of those features is prayer. Matthew said when, Matthew Henry, remember, when God wants to do something great among his people, he always sets them praying. Three more features more quickly. Scripture. That Peter stood up at all, that he turned to Scriptures, is very, very significant here. Because what he was doing was offering insights based upon the Bible where there had been predictions of Judas's apostasy and departure. This is that which was spoken, he said. So there couldn't be any longer in any kind of sense of disillusionment with Judas's action. And somehow it fitted into the sovereignty of God. And you know, when a church is on the growing threshold of experiencing a visitation of the Lord, do you know what book becomes the most important for that church's life and every individual in it? This one, the Bible. We get back into it. Preachers get loyal to it. There is an authority in what is said and there's power on what they speak. I have a friend called Brian Edwards who pastored for many years in Sussex, in in, uh, Surrey. His name is Brian Edwards, and he wrote a wonderful book, perhaps one of the best on revival. It's called Revival, a people saturated with God. And he made an observation in that book which really struck me. I'll read it out to you. He said, in all of my researches... I have never come across a single instance of revival coming to churches or individuals who are liberal in theology and deny the inspiration of God's Word. When I read that, I thought, well, I've read a fair bit of church history. Is that right? I've never known a single instance of revival coming to liberal churches who denied the inspiration of God's Word. And do you know what I concluded? Nor have I. I've never heard of it either. And it means then, what's important to God should be important to us. God's Word is the trigger, the foundation, and the shaper 
of the greatest revivals that have ever happened. And if we get back to God's Word, we become candidates for God's fresh visitation among us. See, it's not the Holy Spirit alone that we need. It is not just the Spirit of God, but the Word of God we also need. The Scriptures, therefore, take on a new importance and central position as the basis, even the preparation for and groundwork of revival. They become the launch pad of what the Holy Spirit is going to do and the rocket fuel that propels it forward. And yet, the negligence of the Bible in Britain today among the churches and even among evangelicals is appalling. The biblical illiteracy among some of our young people and our teens and many of our older adults too. Before the tipping point, it's usually the case that God will begin to marinate people in the thinking that comes from God's Word. It may not all come alive yet. You may not see the fire you're expecting just now, but you're getting into the Bible, and you are becoming a candidate for a special visitation of God. I've mentioned already Wesley and Whitfield. When was Whitfield, who grew up in a, the Bell Inn in Gloucester, and it's still there, it's now a... It's now, a, I think it's a bank, and I, I met a woman coming out, and I said, is there any chance of me going up and having a look in the upper room of this area? And she said, oh no, there's uh, special keys, the manager wouldn't allow that. But I wanted to see where George Whitfield grew up. George Whitfield went to Oxford, and that's where he met Wesley, and they formed a club called the Holy Club that got nicknamed Methodists. During his time as an undergraduate at Oxford, George Whitfield went through the whole of the Bible on his knees with the six volumes of Matthew Henry's commentary open to him so that he came to a decided opinion on the meaning of every chapter, paragraph, and verse in the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and a profound understanding of its whole message and theology. Isn't that amazing? He's only 18, 19 years of age when he graduated. And he's gone through the whole Bible with Matthew Henry. Is there any, do we have to look any further for some of the amazing pre sermons he preached that would have crowds of thousands shrieking with agony of conviction of sin and longings for Jesus to save them? Well, we need another generation of young undergraduates and slightly older people, too, who will know the Bible as well as Whitfield did. The fifth thing is shared ministry. Judas' betrayal and his flight and suicide reminds us of the gaps left by unfaithful people in all of our ranks in Britain today. Churches have known drift and leakage. In spite of all the best efforts of pastors everywhere, we have not seen the commitment that we've known at other seasons of our ministry. And people just leave for the most trivial of reasons, some of which we never discover. And it means then that they had to replace Judas. And what they had a conviction about was this, the days of one man alone with his Bible are over. They knew that God's heart was team ministry. Say that with me, team ministry. And so although they had no fullness of the Spirit and had to cast lots, which was an Old, method, old Testament method of discerning the will of God, they still wanted to discern the will of God, and the lot fell on Matthias, who was the replacement apostle for Judas. Because later on in the New Testament, this is all filled out in terms of the fivefold ministries of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And I've discovered the more I've studied that passage and the identities of these groups, that you can't do without any of them. Apostles are groundbreaking theological foundation layers in experience and doctrine in church communities. Prophets are those who hear and see visual and verbal revelation from God concerning people and situations. They're the church's eyes and often their ears too. Evangelists 
are those ambassadors of heaven who preach the gospel with such anointing that people almost invariably get saved when they open their mouths. And then, of course, you have, uh, you have pastors who are those who are there to care compassionately for the wounded sheep and to fix them up and look after them and protect them from wolves. And the teachers are the theologians who awaken an appetite for truth and study in the hearts of God's people by their careful handling of Scripture so that we become familiar with the contents of the Bible. Could we do without any of those ministries? I don't think so. We need them all. We need every single one of them. And the more we have of them, the more healthy the church will be. The more they will be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Apostolic ministries make us apostolic. We're mission-minded when you're exposed to them. Teachers make us more informed and hungry for truth. Evangelists make us more skilled in our evangelistic witness ourselves. They equip the saints for the same work of ministry. Thank God for team ministry then. And the last thing is empowered community and proclamation. For on the day of Pentecost, there is the sound of a rushing wind and fire that comes to descend in a mass above the 120, and then it arcs into individual flames over every head of the 120 in that room. Do you remember that? So it must have looked a bit like a, a birthday cake for a 120-year-old person present with the candles all flickering on their heads. Now, what this is saying that is that we need a corporate anointing and an anointing of every individual in our church of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the result will be the tipping point has come. The tipping point has come when we've all been revitalized by these preparatory measures to receive the Spirit and be launched into the mission that Jesus has always had in mind for us. Back in 96 or 7, somebody passed me a tape one Sunday morning during these periods of prayer. I said, Greg, you must have a listen to this. He told me what was on the tape. He said, just recently in Pond Inlet in northern Canada, a group of Eskimos had been visited by God. In this community, there was such moral and spiritual decline that 60% of all the girls in this Eskimo community and 30% of the boys had been sexually abused by adults many times their own fathers. And there was drunkenness and unemployment and hopelessness and no purpose in their lives, drug addictions. And a church of less than 50 people would just felt they had to pray for God to show up and do something for their community. And they prayed for seven months on a daily basis like I've been describing. In that small meeting, one particular Sunday, seven Seven months later, there is a sudden sound like the roaring of a jet engine. And that's why I was given the tape, because they had been practicing worship and leading the prayer meeting, and they'd been recording the music so they could give feedback to the music musicians. And while this feeble guitar playing is going on, you suddenly hear over the microphone something like this. <laughs> And then you hear this, drumming. Nobody's playing drums and nobody's blowing wind. It's the sound of a rushing mighty wind and the drumming was evident in its symbolism to the Eskimos because when they were pagans, they used to use drums to summon unclean spirits into their gatherings. So this was an evident act of God producing a drumming sound, only it wasn't an unholy spirit that was about to visit them. It was the Holy Spirit. Do you know revival broke out that very morning? And you can hear it on the tape. And the result was that that revival fire spread instantly. Some ran in terror. Others fell in on their faces. These Inuit were scared themselves. Someone was summoning 
the Holy Spirit, and it wasn't them. And when the meeting was over, every one of those 50 Christians ran home to empty their houses of everything that could offend God. Filthy magazines, dubious videos, books that had been hideous and corrupting. They burned $100,000 worth of products the next day. And within weeks, the whole community was freed. 25,000 Inuit Eskimos in the wider area were converted over the following months. And a church of 50 grew to 1,000 people within a month. Now, these stories are virtually unbelievable for us here today. But this is what the tipping point ultimately can lead to. The things we've been seeing in our radar for some time are the things we're longing to experience again. Something's got to happen in our communities, in our city, and our nation. And so we're to lift our heads in expectancy. We're to gather in love, in unity. We're to talk to God in passionate, faith-filled prayer. We're to listen to God speaking to us prophetically and more particularly through Scripture. We're to honor leaders and the team ministry that God raises up here. We're to depend on the Holy Spirit more than we depend on anyone else. And we're to prioritize mission with the gospel, which is the desirable outcome the Holy Spirit wants to orchestrate through all of this. I believe that our time has come. When God's time has come, our time has come. The thing that I've most sensed in the last two years of my ministry is a re-enchantment with the gospel. I've done a lot of church building and church fixing over my ministry. I'm prophetic, I'm a teacher, I see things, I'm not scared to say things. Church fixing is one thing. Gospel preaching that ignites the whole church is quite another. And that's what God has next on his agenda for us. A passion for the gospel. You remember when you got a bicycle when you were a kid? Two wheelers? Took you a while to learn how to ride it? You were enchanted. Until you went to high school and you had to cycle five miles through rain and snow and wind to get there. And then you became disenchanted. And most of us put away our bikes by the time we were 18 or 19. Then you could get a motorcycle or a car. And then when I got into my mid-30s, motor, uh, mountain bikes came in. And everybody was riding them, including nearly middle-aged men. So I got myself a mountain bike. And I became re-enchanted with cycling again for a while. (laughs) You know, God's heart is that we become re-enchanted completely with the gospel all over again. It's what started this with us. It's what actually maintains it. And it's the only thing that will change a nation. Amen. Father, we bless you for our time together and your word. We feel ourselves chilled to the bone in this building. It's been a sacrifice for us to even be here. But you're going to reward us for this. You've sown seed in us that we've needed. You've underlined things we've already heard and knew, but we've heard them again, and we needed to hear them. You've helped our faith be stirred, and more importantly, our expectancy. And we pray that all that we've heard will become written through our whole being, like Blackpool is written through that confectionery that comes from Lancashire. We want you to write gospel right through us, so that wherever we're we're opened up or broken, we'll see the same passion in every one of us. Bless Ant and Helen, the elders, Bless the leaders here. Bless the congregation. Bless young and old. Bless youth and children. We pray, Father, that you're going to send special seasons of visitation from the presence of the Lord. You're going to build this church. 
You're going to send it forth. You're going to make it an influence. You're going to give it profile. You're going to use their lives to impact others. And this town, people are going to know there's a living God in this city, that the churches are going to come alive with you in a corporate unity and passion for Jesus and passion for souls. So Holy Spirit, anoint us all and wean us off idols and distractions. And focuses upon yourself and your resources and the burden of your own heart. Don't let us be Jonas who've run away from you. Let us be servants of God who are running for you and hard after you and will do anything you ask us to do to the glory of God. Amen.